Masechet Gitin, Daf Chet. We yesterday we talked about the placement of the signatures on the get, and the basic rule is that it has to be the signatures have to be under the text of the get, can't be on the sides, and cannot be on top. So we're going to question that now. We have a tradition that the uh, first generation Amora Rav from Sura in Babel, he used to sign on the side of the get. Uh, so it seems to be that that is valid. So how could that be if the Mishnah said it's not? When Rav did it, he did it like this. Here it says, Yaakov ben Yisrak Aed. So Gago, the meaning the top of the letters, faces towards the text. That's okay if you do it that way. When the Mishnah was saying it's no good, that was talking about like this, Yosef ben Shimon, where it's the bottoms that are towards the text. That's not good. That's not good. It has to be the top is pointing towards the text, and then it's fine. Okay, so that reconciles that part of the Mishnah, but it has to be consistent with the rest of the Mishnah. Hold on, we had a case of two Gitin on the same page going head to head. Right here it says Ploni ben Ploni Megurash. So it's, right, it starts up here and, and is, uh, uh, reads upwards. Um, and this is another get that starts over here and reads downwards. If we assume, not like this picture, but that the, the uh, signatures are written straight across, well then, what's wrong with it? Let's just see which way do the, does the top of the letters of the signatures point towards. If they're written, that, so we could read them, like right side up for us, then that means the tops of the letters are pointing towards the upper get, and therefore it should be fine, even though it's on top, uh, it's uh, relative to this one, it's um, near the head of this get, not at the foot of the get, but we just saw, according to Rav, as long as the tops of the letters are pointing towards the get, then that should be fine. But yet the Mishnah said, in this case, when it's head to head, both of the Gitin are Pasul. So why don't we say that one of them is Kasher? So we answer, Hatam No, in the case in the Mishnah there, we're talking about where the, the two signatures are written perpendicular, like a door bolt that's perpendicular to the rest of the mechanism. That's how it locks. Um, so too, if you write these uh, perpendicular to the rest of the text, so you see that the letters are not are pointing to nothing. They're not pointing to the top one or the bottom one. Right? It wouldn't matter if you flip these around. 180 would pointing this way, uh, and that's why it, that's why both are no good in this case. All right, that works, but it still has to be consistent with the rest of the Mishnah. Kasher, uh, the Mishnah said, let's say you have the head of one get next to the foot of another get. In other words, you have one get, and then you have a space with the witnesses, and then you start the next get after that, right? So it goes um, from end to beginning. Well, then, the topmost get is fine, because you wrote the get, and at the after the end of the get, the signatures are right there. And the bottom one is no good, because the signatures are on top of it. Now, if you're saying that the Mishnah is talking about a case where they're written as a door bolt like this, perpendicular, 
similar, then even if this over here was the end of a get, still wouldn't be good, even though the signatures are after the end of the text of the get, but still they're pointing the wrong way. And so it's, it would this, uh, in this case, none of, neither of the gitin would, would be good, but the Mishnah says that the top one is good. Rather, a new answer totally to everything we've said before. This whole line of questioning started off with Rav, who would write it on the side, and we said that that was valid. No, that was not talking about a get, but rather a diske, uh, which is a subpoena that people have to come to the court. That's not as important as a legal document as something like a get. So for that, you can write it on the side, and then you better come to court, that's fine. But for a get, the dab would not do that, and therefore there's no question at all. We can go way back to our original assumption that the, um, uh, the get, the signatures, have to be, in fact, under the get, and in the same orientation as the rest of the get. All right. Get Shekitavo Ivrit, Vechule, Ketab Sofer, Veayed Kasher. So the last um, uh, part of the Mishnah said that if you have only one witness, but, also, uh, but it's the handwriting, uh, but you have the handwriting of the Sofer and you know who it is, then the handwriting of the Sofer can count like one witness and plus the other witness that get is valid. says, no, no, that's not good enough. If it's only the handwriting of the get, the handwriting of the get is by the scribe, and then there's one other witness, that's not sufficient. You have to say, that the scribe is, also, is one of the signatories, and there is another signature. So it has to be two signatures, but it's okay if the scribe himself is one of the signatures. That's the only case where it could be good. Amad Avchista, Hamaneh, Rabbi Yosehi. Avchista says, who is the author of this Mishnah? It has to be Rabbi Yoseh. Rabbi Yoseh said that a shaliach is not allowed to appoint someone else to, to, be, uh, to sign the get. Rather, only the husband himself can uh, tell someone to sign the get. The husband has to tell the person directly, cannot be through a shaliach. Therefore, we're not worried about the following case. According to the other opinion, not a biyoseh, uh, who says a, a shaliach can ask someone else to write a get, we'll have the, we'll have a following problem. A husband will say, I want Ezra HaSofer to write the get, and I want Reuven and Shimon to sign the get. And then the shaliach is going to go first to the Ezra HaSofer, and he's saying, can you, he's going to say, can you write the get? He's going to see Ezra Sofer, he's a chashuv person. So now if he says, okay, I take it back without you signing it, Ezra is going to get insulted. Well, I'm writing it, I'm here anyway, why don't you let me sign it? And so, in order to not embarrass Ezra, he'll say, you know what, while you have it, sign it also. But that's against the husband's wishes, because the husband said, Reuven and Shimon have to be the signatories, and you'll have a get pasul. Therefore, according to the other opinion, if the scribe is one of the signatures, we, ha we worry that that mistake happened, and therefore it's no good. But that mistake could never happen, according to the Biyose, because according to the Biyose, no one can sign the get unless the husband told him directly. And therefore, the, if there is a shaliach, the, uh, the, the shaliach won't be able to tell the scribe. If he does, the scribe will say, well, you, you, you can't tell me. The husband has to tell me, and everybody knows. And therefore, there's no worry that the scribe will be insulted because the shaliach didn't tell him to sign it, because the shaliach has no power to tell him to sign it. If we see a signature of the scribe on the document, we know for sure that the husband told him himself 
and that signature is therefore valid. There was an actual case of a ketubah, not a get, but a ketubah, that was they came to the Biabhu. And people recognized that the, 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 the text was written in the scribe's handwriting, and then there was one witness. They couldn't verify the other witness that was on it. So they said, well, that's good enough. We can verify the handwriting of the scribe and one witness, so it should be good, just like our Mishnah says, that, that a get written like that is, is also good. But then Yirbiya corrected them and says, no, it's not ketav sofed, it's chatam sofed. The scribe would have to be one of the signatories in order for it to be valid. Katav The end, end of the Mishnah said that if you write the, instead of writing the husband's name and the wife's name properly, let's say someone uses a surname or nickname. Um, this is kind of like what a family name is now. Some family names, uh, let's say like Ben Ezra or Ibn Ezra. It's, uh, once at uh, some point uh, uh, a long time ago, there was a guy named Ezra and then so it was Ben Ezra. But then that became a last name and even the grandchildren and great-grandchildren kept that name Ben Ezra. Um, and so that this is a kind of like a last name, and you might call that person that name, even though it's not actually their father's name. So uh, this Mishnah said, that's okay. If your husband or a wife in the document, in the get, you can use that name. So this Baraita says, you can only go back 10 generations, right? That's, that's fine. Um, if you can trace it back, most people don't know so far back, but if someone knows and says, yeah, this Ezra was nine generations ago, that's fine. However, Rabbi Shimon ben Azar mo Mahmir and said you can use this this uh, family name only three generations back, right? If your grandfather was Ezra and you're now called uh, uh, you're called that or great grandfather, that's okay for three generations, but not more than that. Most people they know back three generations, but they don't know further back than that. So therefore, you can still identify um, if you go back that many. Um, we have a statement of Rabbi Hanina who says that this family name in the get, you can use it only if it's three or less generations back. Who does he follow? That Rabbi Hanina is an Amora. Which Tana does he follow? He follows Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar in this Baraita. Amara Vuna, my kira'a, ki tolid banim, obne banim, venoshantem. There's a hint to this in a Pasuk, because the Pasuk says, when you have children and children's children, then venoshantem, meaning you're there for a long time, you'll be, uh, it's already called old. So, children and grandchildren, that's okay. More than that is already considered old forgotten. Um, so that's why it's only up to three generations, but not more. Little Agada, that's going to uh, tie into this Pasuk of Kitolid. This is the reading on Tisha B'Av morning. Uh, the Eretz Yisrael became desolate um, because of, only after seven uh, generations of 
royal courts that worshipped Abu Dazara, Veluhen, and it's going to list seven kings of the north of, of the north of Israel. Yedovam ben Nevat, Ubaasha ben Achaya, Vecha ben Omri, Vehu ben Nimshi, Ufekar ben Remaliau, Menachem ben Gadi, Veoshea ben Ela, Shenemar, Umlelayo de Tashiba, Navha Nafshaha, Baam Shimshaha, Veojomam, Bosha, Vehafera, Pasukinimea, that says she who has given birth to seven, that refers to these seven kings and their courts, um, that it's because of their Avodazara that the sun is gone and she is ashamed and confounded. What is the Pasuk? Another, well, we just saw Pasuk, but what's the Pasuk in the Torah? That we can learn that the seven generations of exile, uh, and then you, if you, uh, the Peshat of the Pasuk is, if you go into the land and then you're there for many generations and you get comfortable in the land and you think everything's okay and you forget the ways of the Torah and you follow Avodah Zarah, then you will perish and be exiled from the land. So we learn, we have a hint from here of seven generations because Kitoli, that's one generation, Banim is plural, so that's two, Bene is also plural, that's another two, Banim is plural also, that's another two, so that's seven altogether. After seven generations of uh, sinning in the land, then um, uh, you will get exiled. Hashem is quite merciful in waiting all that time, hoping that maybe they'll make Teshuvah. Regarding one of those seven, Hoshea ben Elah says he did, the, he did evil in God's eyes, but not as bad as the other kings. Okay, so everything is relative. He was really bad, but still not as bad as the others. And yet, in his days, Shaman Esed came and exiled the northern tribes around 722. Um, so if he wasn't as bad as his predecessors, so why did he suffer the punishment of exile? So these pardesaot, it sounds like a, a paradise or gardens, but actually it should be perozdaot, it means guards. So these guards that Yerobam placed on the roads so that the Jews would not go to Aliyah Laregel. Yerobam, he's the one that broke away and, and uh, the north, the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom after King Shalomo. The Bet HaMikdash was in Yerushalayim in the south. So Yerobam felt uh, uh, thought to himself, if the Bet HaMikdash in Yerushalayim, then everybody from the north, from my kingdom, on the holidays, they're going to go down to Yerushalayim, and then they're going to give their money there, and the taxes there, and they're going to be so subservience. I don't want that to happen. So he built the golden calves in the north, and he put guards to make sure no one would be allowed to go to the Beit HaMikdash. All right, that's a very evil thing that he did, obviously. And so, to his credit, um, many generations later, Hosea uh, ben Elah removed those guards and said, listen, uh, even though I'm king of the north, if, so, if you want to go to the south and go to Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim, you may do so. So, that seems like it's pretty good. Here's the kicker though, right? Sometimes something good can reveal something worse, something bad. 
Um, even though now the, the Israelites in the north had the opportunity to go to Yerushalayim, Aliyah, Laregel, still they didn't go. Which means the guards that were there weren't the main reason that they weren't going. They weren't going because they didn't want to go. And that actually only revealed their sin. Right? If you don't... Um, you know, if you uh, can't visit someone because you're stuck, because you're sick, whatever, I can't go to your party. Um, so then, all right, uh, you have an excuse, you couldn't go. But if you could go, and you just decided you didn't want to, then you're in real trouble. And so Hashem said, okay, all the, for, for all those years that B'nai Israel didn't go, Aliyad um, Laregel, now they deserve punishment. Because I see, it wasn't against their will. It's not like, oh, we wish we could go to Shalayim. Oh, what could we do? There's guards on the way. Okay, I removed the guards. You still don't want to go. So that means this whole time you were rebelling and you are deserving of punishment for all that. So, Hosea bin Hosea ben Elah, trying to do something good, removing the guards, actually revealed that um, the Israelites had no wish to go in the first place. All right, this is a good lesson to everyone who still lives outside of Eretz Yisrael. Right, we pray for 2,000. If only we had a land, we could go back. Right, okay, so then we, what, what could we do? We, we didn't have a land. We weren't able to go back. If you're able to go back and you still don't, that shows that whole time, you, how much did you really care if you're still in exile? Amar Rav Chista, Amar Mor Ukva. Amri La, Rav Chista, Amar Rabbi Yirmiya. So Rav Chista said this either in the name of Mor Ukva or in the name of Rabbi Yirmiya. Tarash Miremar. Daniel says, God washed over the evil and brought it upon us. In other words, he made sure that the punishment would come. Because Hashem is righteous. This doesn't make sense. Because Hashem is righteous, he's careful to make sure that the punishment will come upon us. If he was so righteous, he would not be so careful. Uh, to make sure the punishment comes upon us, but would forgive it. Rather, the righteous thing that Hashem did, it was in fact a good thing, is that um, when he um, uh, uh, that the, uh, when he exiled Galut Sidkiyah, Sidkiyah, the last king of Judea, the Galut Yehoyachin was still in Babel. Galut Yehoyachin came first. That was in 597 BCE. A lot of the elites from uh, from Judea, the king, his family, um, the, uh, the 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 leaders, the scholars, uh, teachers, right? They went into exile and they set up a community there in exile. Now you might think that's a terrible thing. It was a terrible thing. Galut Yachin was a terrible blow. But within that, there was also a tzedakah. Hashem made sure to bring that evil at that time. That way, uh, th- those those elite, those special people, the t- the people knowledgeable of Torah, could go to Babel, set up a community there, so that. Um, 11 years later, in 586 BCE, when the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, and Sidkiyah uh, went into exile, and all the people, another whole group of people then, went into exile, they could go to Babel, and there was already a community set up, there was already uh, an elementary school, a yeshiva, a Beit Knesset, a mikveh, that everything there, so that they could go and sustain themselves and keep their identity. All right, how do we see this in the Pasuk? 
It says that the craftsmen and the smiths uh, and the smiths went. And Peshat is talking about literally the craftsmen and the smiths, in addition to the political leaders and the teachers and the and the prophets and the anyone who might make a rebellion. And that's you know the teachers um, and political leaders can inspire rebellion. But in addition to make a rebellion, you need people that will make weapons. That's the craftsmen and the smiths. So the um, the uh, the Bavel has to make sure and the make sure that you get rid of those people as well. You leave behind the illiterate farmers. That's okay. They're not a threat. They're not going to make a rebellion. Okay, so the Peshat is talking about actual blacksmiths uh, making weapons. But the Midrash says, Harash, this is a fir- this refers to the Torah sages. Torah sages, as soon as they open their mouths and start to um, uh, expound on uh, a law, uh, everybody becomes as if they're deaf-mute. Everybody's quiet, right? When you have a you know, great sage comes in, um, I remember when uh, we used to go to Yazdin, Chamavadya Yosef's uh, big big lecture on uh, Shi'ur on every Moshe Shabbat, and we have, we have to get there early, get a seat. Hundreds of people there, everybody's talking and thing, and he walks in, and everybody's all suddenly totally quiet, as if as if they are mutes. That's the great sages then. Masger sogrin shuv enan potrim, and Masger uh, doesn't mean uh, the Smiths, but rather. Uh, the sages also, that once they decide a topic and they close the case, that's it. Nobody opens it again because they trust them. Oh, the rabbis decided something. All right, we're going to follow them. They're not going to question and open up their uh, the issue again. How many scholars were there? Elif, 1,000 scholars. All right, you have 1,000 uh, great scholars that can sustain a whole community for a long time. Ola Amar Shekdim Shete Shanim Le Venoshantem. That when it says that Hashem was uh, 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 was uh, very meticulous in bringing there um, the the punishment, uh, what do you mean meticulous? That He even hurried it up and brought it two years before it should have been. Benoshem Tem Gematri of that is 852. So the exile should have happened after 852 years. God brought it two years earlier so that they would go into exile and not be completely destroyed. Um, because the continuation of that pasuk is ki avod tovedun maher, so it says that you're going to be destroyed if you stay in the land. So if it, if they had to, if they were able to stay in the land, the full 852, then the end of at the end of that they would be totally destroyed. So Hashem says, I'm going to be extra uh, meticulous, extra zealous, and bring the punishment of exile two years earlier as a favor. It's a tzedakah, in fact. Um, that way, they'll be in exile and they'll live there and prosper there and won't be destroyed by staying in the land. Okay, Venoshantem is um, 800, is a gematria, but also you can calculate uh, what where they um, got these years from. Uh, the Nevi'im uh, in Melachim says that the Bet HaMikdash was built 480 years after the exile of Egypt. So if you subtract from that, 40 years that they were in the desert, that means uh, from the time that they um, entered the land until the Bet HaMikdash, so from Yehoshua until Shalomo, was 440 years. The Bet HaMikdash was up, um, according to the Midrash, for 410 years, and so add those two together, that's 850 years. 
that from the time that B'nai Israel entered the land until the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed and, uh, and they were exiled. And so this is another example of the tzedakah that Hashem did. Even within punishment, Hashem gives us the tools to survive and uh, be able to live another day and thrive through Torah, um, uh, through even, even though in exile. So this is a, w- a really important lesson. Sometimes something bad happens, but you never know, even within that bad thing, there is already the glimmers, the uh, foundation of the redemption that is to come. says we can learn that the mehera, when it comes to uh, very quick, right? I'll be there soon. What does it mean when someone says, you know, I'll, I'll uh, send it soon? Does that mean a one minute, a day? Sometimes it takes longer. So uh, for us, you know, soon means it should be a few minutes but for in Hashem's eyes the pasuk says ki avod tovedun maher you'll be destroyed quickly well how long is quickly Hashem was patient for 800 and uh, 52 years so quickly is uh, 852 years in God's eyes is quickly so you can use this when um, you know someone when you don't send someone a check you say I'll send it soon all right, then uh, you can point to this to say that um, soon in God's eyes, 852 years. All right, next Mishnah. Very, very important Mishnah. Um, it, it's uh, important for understanding the uh, the source of aguna, even up to now uh, nowadays. Get meuse means a forced get from the word asa to do something, but meuse is to make someone do it. If uh, anyone forces a husband to give a get, the get is no good, right? So you can't hire some thugs and uh, break the guy's knees until he gives a get. Even if he gives a get, that get will be invalid. So it doesn't help besides being illegal and other problems. So a get muse is no good. The get, the husband has to do it by his own free will. However, there are certain cases where a court is permitted to force um, that, you know, force by means of, uh, in those days, lashes um, or fines. Nowadays in Israel, um, if a betin finds that a husband should give a get, they could put the guy into jail. If he's already in jail, they could put him into solitary confinement. They could take away his rights, his right to drive, and other things until he gives a get. So this is a halacha in Israel, we can do things to force the guy. I don't think they hit the guy in Israel, um, uh, uh, but in olden days they would. Okay, so uh, what, w- what will be those conditions? If, for example, someone is married to someone that he's not allowed to marry, like a Kohen to a Gerusha. Uh, so he's not allowed to marry, so they would hit him until he does that. Or if he, is, uh, he became a tanner and it's very smelly, to be a tanner, and she says it's disgusting. Ma'usli, this husband, I can't be with him in the same room. Um, so that's a valid, uh, that's a, a valid claim, and and we tell him the court will tell him this. She has a valid point. You have to divorce her. If he says no, we hit him until he does so. Wait a second, but how, but he doesn't want to. We just said that you can't force a guy to do it. So this is Rambam's famous ex- explanation that we hit him, we hit the yeser hara out of him. Everybody deep down wants to do the right thing, but the yeser hara is forcing him not to, right? Out of spite, out of hate, 
he's withholding the gas. So we hit him until he gets his senses back and he does the right thing. And, uh, and that's called that he, that he wants to. Okay, so here's the details. If it's a Jewish court, proper Jewish court, and they deem that this is a case where Yes, you deserve. You have to. You your that you um, have to give a get, and they force him to. That get is valid. But if someone goes to a non-Jewish court, a Roman court, and the and that court forces him to give a get, the get is is no good. It's invalid. Um, now, even by goyim, they, here's what they can do. Um, if uh, if they go to a non-Jewish court, the non-Jewish court can hit him and, and tell him. Do whatever the Jewish court says, and then it'll be okay. This is similar to nowadays. If someone goes to a Betin, then they sign a binding arbitration. And the Betin says, okay, you have to do this. And then if they still doesn't do that, then you could take them to secular court to enforce what the Betin already said. So that would be okay as long as the, as the secular court is all simply enforcing what the Jewish court said, but it's the Jewish court themselves that deemed that this get must be given, and can he can they can force him to do it. Amar of Nachman, Amar Shemuel, get Israel, kadin kasher shelo kadin pasul u posel. So Shemuel is introducing now another subcategory. Even if you go to a Jewish court. Um, if they give it properly, in other words, it's one of the categories where a husband should be forced to, to give a get, and they force him to give a get, then it's a valid get. But let's say they do it shelokidin, they do it unlawfully, even though it's a Jewish court, um, either they don't know the law, or they misapply the law, whatever it is, and, you know, just a regular case that should not be uh, forced they go and force him anyway. So that get, on the one hand, it's invalid, meaning she cannot go and remarry. But it's enough of a get that it's posel that makes her a divorcee, so that if the husband dies in the meantime, she cannot marry a kohen. It's called reyach a get. It's not a good get, but it's enough a scent of a get, a trace of a get, that it uh, declares her as a divorcee uh, with regard to uh, marrying a kohen, but not a divorcee with respect to actually getting remarried. All right, so if it's a betin, it has to be a competent betin that knows the categories of when one can force a husband to do so. Now, bagoyim kadin pasulu posel shelo kadin afilu reyachaget en ba. If they go to a non-Jewish court, non-Jewish court forces the husband to give a get, and they do so lawfully. In other words, the non-Jewish court, I don't know, maybe they know the Jewish law, or they happen to happens to be a case where it should be done, and they force him to. So it's not good. It's the same as the as the lo kedin of Israel, as the kedin of goyim. It's an invalid, although it also disqualifies her from marrying a kohen. And if the non-Jewish court forces him improperly, a case where he shouldn't be forced, then it doesn't even have reach get. It's zero, and she can even if the husband dies. She can even go marry a Kohen afterwards. All right, that's Shemuel's opinion. Now we ask, Well, I don't understand Shemuel's distinction regarding a non-Jewish court. If non-Jewish court is worthy of compel, of compelling someone to do to a husband to give a get, then if it's kedim, it should be a valid get. And if they're not uh, worthy of forcing a husband to give a get, then it should not be pasul at all. Uh, and uh, why should, uh, like, it should be afilu and rechaget and ba, right? Why would a non-Jewish court 
make, cause an in-between status that's pasul or posel. If they can do it, so let it be good. If they can't do it, there should be no dayachaget. What is the status of this um, uh, um, uh, this kedin when it's in uh, in the sta- in, uh, in by a non-Jewish court? All right, good question. We'll have a couple of answers. Amar Rav Meshar Sheya, Devar Torah get meoseh bagoyim kasher. Umatam amru pasul shelotehe kol achat veachat olechet v'tola asma begoy umafkat asma biyad baala. Really, according to on a Doraita level. A forced get, even in the, in the hands of non-Jews, is valid. Even though it's better, you're supposed to go to a Jewish court, but he went to a non-Jewish court, but it is one of the categories that he has to give it. So, all right, even a Jew should do it, but if a non-Jew forces him, then that's also a valid gift. He was forced, but that's okay on a Doraita level. However, the rabbis are the ones that say, it's, we work at declaring it to be an invalid get. Don't use it. Because we don't want to encourage or allow every woman who wants to get out, she goes, she'll go to a non-Jewish court and then she'll get out of, uh, release herself from her husband. So we don't want people to, um, uh, to get used to that. This is an important law that in general the rabbis were against using non-Jewish courts um, because even uh, this was the last vestige of Jewish autonomy. Although we didn't have our own land, our own borders, our own army, our own, own, um, uh, our own currency, or, or all, all things that a country will, will have, and now we're in exile, nevertheless we remained a nation through our law, and a law needs, needs uh, justices. So by having Jewish courts, batedin, everywhere, and making sure that that Jews only go to the Batedin, so we're able to have a, um, a country, a nation, um, even without a land. And if everybody's going to go to non-Jewish courts, then we'll lose that out. So that's in general, um, going to non-Jewish court, courts, of course, is assuming that there are um, Batedin that are uh, competent and available that can judge all these things. Um, so we don't want that. To, furthermore, what we don't want to happen, um, it would be that the woman would go to non-Jewish courts because they can be more easily bribed or because of the different laws that they have. And then they, uh, anytime she's upset about something, she'll go and tell and ask the non-Jewish court. The non-Jewish court will force the guy to give her a get. And uh, now this whole uh, the whole balance of of uh, of gitin will be out of whack, and it's not going to be under the betin, according to the um, the uh, the formulas and the considerations that the rabbis had. And so um, it's going to give the the woman power um, that the rabbis did not want them to have by um, accessing these non-Jewish courts. And therefore, um, the rabbi said, even though from the letter of the law, a get like this, if it's done in a non-Jewish court, and it's a valid reason, the get would be valid in order not to encourage such um, uh, behavior in the future and across the board. They said, you know what, you still can't get remarried, therefore you may as well go to a Jewish court. Okay. Hold on, this doesn't make sense for the continuation. If going to a non-Jewish court is actually valid when it's kedin, then if the non-Jewish court does it, meaning it's not a case that falls into that proper category, why just tell me that it's not even a cent of a get? It should be the same as once you're saying that kedin of non-Jews is like kedin of a Jewish court, should be the same, and just like of Israel, 
um, it makes her indisqualified to marry Kohen, so too it should make her disqualified if she's Shilokedin in a non-Jewish court. Rather, this whole statement of Rav Meshashiyah is uh, mistaken. This is a very harsh thing to say about Rav Meshashiyah, right? This is, um, uh, this is a, uh, um, a, a mistaken ruling, Beduta, uh, literally made up. Or based on a lie, right? This is uh, we got the we got the wrong information here, so we reject this answer. All right. If so, we now we need a new answer to the question: How come the uh, non-Jewish court? Why does it make her pasul if it's kedin and and the non-Jewish court midoraita cannot effectuate anything? Why do we even say? That the get makes her disqualified. The tamamai bekadin bekadin Israel michlaf shelokadin bekadin Israel la michlaf. It's in fact because of a gezera. If we say that a non-Jewish court uh, kedin is nothing, right? It's a zero. It's tissue paper. Um, then people will say, well, maybe um, being getting forced in a betin of Israel is also n- no good. If oh, they're going to think they're going to mix up being forced Kadin in the non-Jewish court with being forced Kadin in the Jewish court. And if this one is worth zero, they're going to think that even in Israel, it's worth zero. Therefore, the rabbi said, you know what, when if, even if it's a non-Jewish court and it's Kadin, let it at least disqualify her so people know this is a serious thing. And then they'll, and then they'll take, when the Jewish court does it, they'll take that seriously. But the case of Shelo Kadin um, in a non-Jewish court, that they're not going to mistake that with Kedin in Israel. That's already two differences, and so they're not going to mix those up. You also don't have to worry about them mixing up Shelo Kedin to Shelo Kedin, since even if they would, the Shelo Kedin in the Israel case, that's just a disqualification because of Reyach Haget. Reyach Haget is only the Rabbanan. So at worst, they'll say, well, Shelo Kedin in Nanju is worth nothing, so maybe Shelo Kedin in the Jewish court, court is, is also worth nothing. Well, in fact, it is on Doraita, it's worth nothing. And so it's only Drabanan. So we're not going to make a Gezera because someone might make a mistake in a Drabanan. That would be a Gezera on a Drabanan, which we don't do generally. Abaye found Rav Yosef that he was sitting in judgment and he was forcing husbands to give Gitin to their wives. He said, how can we do that? We are hediotot, meaning we are non-experts. Now, these are the greatest sages of the generation. But the point is that earlier generations, they had uh, uh, official semicha. In Eretz Yisrael also, they had official semicha. But in Babel, they didn't have official semicha. And so they were not, they could not, not considered expert judges. They were like lay judges. They knew they were knowledgeable, of course. Um, but still didn't have that official status. So his question is, how can we adjudicate a gitin? We can write gitin, regular gitin, but to force someone to give a get, that requires um, a non-hedyot status, and we are only hedyotot. What's the source? Betanya, Anytime you find Gentile courts, from the word agora in Greek, meaning an assembly, 
even though their laws are equivalent to Jewish law. Let's say you have a case. We, we have a situation where a country where the non-Jewish laws are the exact same thing as the Jewish laws. So it's not that you're going to get any, it's not because their laws are corrupt or, or problematic. The laws are the same. Nevertheless, this is just because of um, keeping national uh, um, a national legal system alive that we have to do this so you are not allowed to go to those courts as the pasuk says these are the mishpatim the laws that you you should place before them lifnehem right before them you put it before the jewish judges right these are the laws moshe that you have to teach to the jewish judges so they can adjudicate and not before non-jewish judges so don't go to them that's one part Another interpretation of Lifnehem is before them means the official ordained judges, those with semicha, but not before Hedyotot who don't have semicha. So you see from here um, that uh, uh, someone, a judge who is Hedyot, is not allowed to adjudicate these laws. So that's Abaya's question to Rav Yosef. How are you doing this? Oh, we are acting as um, agents of them, of, of the judges in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, that's, that's the law. An official betin with semicha, you can come to them directly, or they can't get there. They can appoint others and says, here, you, we appoint you to be our shalichim. Go and adjudicate that case in a different place. And so they give, they authorize us in, uh, from Edith Israel, they authorize us in Bavel to adjudicate these cases, just like is the case with Hoda'ot and Halva'ot, admissions and loans, other monetary cases, um, right? You loan me money, uh, you admit that you are paid this much, you pay, you have to pay more, and so on. We adjudicate those cases also, even though that requires a betin, because we are their agents. Okay, so that's a, that's a good answer. But now we ask, if you can adjudicate those monetary cases and gitin, why not other cases of robbery and injury, right? So, but we don't adjudicate those. You're right. We uh, only uh, do their uh, the age. We are only agents for the betin in Israel, um, where regarding matters that are common, happen all the time. Gitin, unfortunately, happen often, and uh, loans and admissions. These things happen all the time. These are the regular business matters. Whereas robbery and injury, well, thankfully, at least back then, was not uh, common, and therefore they did not make us uh, uh, agents to adjudicate those matters. So we're only authorized to adjudicate um, uh, these these matters and not others, and that's why uh, the Batedin were able to to do so. Now this is, uh, th that law was talking about back then when at the same time there were, there was semicha in Eretz Yisrael. But this uh, is extended it, it past the times of the Talmud, even though um, after the times of the Talmud there was no semicha anywhere. Nevertheless, uh, we can continue, the poskim say, we continue as shalichim of the betin that the sages today, the dayanim today, uh, are, are, are authorized by the earlier generations to continue to run batedin 
to adjudicate such matters. In sum, this is the source of the uh, issue today of Agunot, uh, because um, a man has to be, uh, out of his full full free will, has to give the get, and if a man does not want to, um, then he can hold up his wife from uh, being able to uh, remarry, uh, which is a terrible injustice. Um, it's partially um, resolved in Etsy Israel because there they can throw a guy in jail. However, it's only within certain uh, limited categories that um, that the Betin can do it, and Batedin in, in reality only apply it in um, a restricted number of cases. So in Israel, there's still a lot of agunot. Um, uh, even to give a fine, as according to many, that would be get me'useh, to fine a person. Uh, one solution that has worked um, uh, in, uh, in America is the RCA document that requires the husband to pay, but not as a fine, rather as a payment of the ketubah, uh, which is the, uh, the, the basic law uh, throughout marriage husband has to pay for food, clothing, shelter, and all the needs of his wife every day that they are married. So that's uh, made, made into a monetary son, and therefore he has to pay that every day, uh, which is not a fine, not a force. It's just the fact of marriage. He's simply fulfilling his obligation as a married husband. If he wants to get out of it, he can get out of it any day by giving her a get. But in the meantime, that amount accrues, and um, that is, a, is binding. And if the guy still doesn't listen to a betin, then that can be uh, given over to, uh, transferred to a secular court that can enforce that which the husband already obligated himself to in the Ketubah and in that contract. Um, and this has been proven to work in the vast majority of cases. Um, but anyway, this is the, um, this sugya is the source of the issue. Baruch Adonai Le'olam, Amen ve'amen.